Well, good morning. Happy Easter. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors. Uh, here, as we uh, just read, we will be taking a brief break just for this one week uh, from the book of Romans in order to uh, consider and celebrate the re- resurrection of, uh, of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 12. And so as you turn there in your Bibles or on your device or whatever it might be, uh, I want to tell you a story about mall walking. Now, when I say mall walking, if you have the image in your mind of someone with maybe a headband and short shorts and socks up to their knees and orthopedic shoes, uh, kind of power walking through Stonebriar, get that image out of your mind because it's an unpleasant image and it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Instead, what I'm talking about is a particular example of mall walking that I had on a trip to Kenya. A few years ago, I was helping a little, uh, a little church plant over there do some pastor training. And, uh, and so after the conference, we, uh, we drove back into Nairobi uh, in order to fly back to the States. And uh, we were there a, a couple hours early. And so uh, we decided to grab lunch rather than waiting until we got to the airport. And so we stopped at a little uh, shopping mall. Uh, there in Nairobi. And, uh, and so since we were there early, we thought, you know what, we'll go ahead and do a little souvenir shopping. So most of the team kind of went their own ways and, uh, and shopped for souvenirs. I had been to Africa, I think, four or five times by that point, And so there's only so many wooden giraffes uh, and wooden bowls that you need. And so I decided, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to walk around. Uh, I'm going to stretch my legs because I'm about to sit in coach for 17 hours, and that's not pleasant. And, uh, and so I just sort of started walking around the mall and kind of looking at the different stores and looking at the people, and uh, that was just kind of fun for me until I noticed there was this one guy that was just glaring at me. And, uh, and so I did a little loop around the mall, and when I got over to where that guy was, he stopped me, and he asked me, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just uh, about to meet some friends for lunch, and so I thought I'd just kind of walk around a little bit before them. And he seemed appeased. He said, okay, and uh, nodded his head, and uh, that was that, I thought, until I did another loop again and come back, and there is this guy that's uh, standing there along with, he's now brought a buddy who is a security guard. Now, when I say security guard, I don't want you to think the Paul Blart Renacop security guards that you have at the Galleria. No offense if you're a security guard. You know, we thank you for your service. But that's not the image of the security guard that I want you to think. This guy was carrying an AK-47. And so uh, he stops me, and so I'm a little bit skittish uh, because this guy's carrying an AK-47 in a mall. And, uh, and so he, uh, he asked me what I'm doing. And so I told him the same thing. I said, I'm meeting some people here, and, uh, and I'm just kind of walking around until then. And he said, well, that's not permitted. I said, what's not permitted? And he said, walking. And so uh, literally, literally, as he said that, two people walked right by us. And so I'm like, you didn't stop them. Uh, and, uh, and so um, he says, it's not permitted. I said, what's not permitted? He says, uh, walking. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm thinking, well, no one is just standing perfectly still. No one has attained the gift of flight. No one's sitting on the ground. Literally everyone, except for Mr. Tattletale, Mr. Security Guard, and myself, everyone else is, uh, is walking. And, uh, and so I said, well, uh, but I'm, I'm waiting to meet some people. He says, you have to leave. I said, but I'm about to eat lunch. And he says, then go sit down there. And I said, but they won't let me sit because I'm, my friends aren't ready yet. And he says, well, it's not permitted. And I said, what's well, not permitted? He said, walking. It's like this loop. We're in some sort of Abbott and Costello skit or candid camera or something. 
uh, like that. I don't know what it was. To this day, I have no idea what it was. I just went and sat down because uh, I figured I, maybe I wouldn't get in trouble if I sat down. And uh, I don't know what it was. Maybe he didn't like uh, Americans. Maybe he didn't uh, like this way that I walked. Tim always makes fun of me and uh, does an impression of the way that I walk as if it's silly or something. So maybe he just thought my particular walk was inappropriate. Um, whatever it was, something about what I was doing he found offensive or threatening. That's what we see in the text this morning with Jesus. Jesus doesn't break an actual rule. He doesn't actually break any actual law. And yet something about what he's doing offends and threatens the religious leaders of his day. And so they stop him and they say, why are you doing what you're doing? What gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do these things that you're doing? And unlike me, Jesus isn't confused by the question, and Jesus doesn't just respond with mere sarcasm. He points directly to his authorization. He points directly to his authority, indeed his kingdom and his glory. So what does all of this have to do with Easter? Let's pray, and then we'll dive in together uh, to see. First, just ask you to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you uh, eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, a heart that's undivided. And Would you pray that uh, in addition, for those around you, for us corporately, whether it's your family or spiritual family or friends or strangers, that the Lord would give us this collective ability to hear and to heed His Word. And then would you pray for me, that the Lord would give me boldness and more than anything that I would be faithful uh, to the glory, the, the authority, the sufficiency of, uh, of His Word this morning. So Father, we thank You that you're good and you do good. You're a good father who gives good gifts. And so you've given us this morning this uh, reality of the resurrection. You've given us the uh, authority of your scriptures. And so may we uh, just worship you this morning as we consider your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at uh, verse 38 of Matthew 12. Again, Matthew 12:38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying... Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, we're just coming in in the middle of this existing context. So we need to understand what's happening in the greater context of Matthew 12 in order to understand what's happening here in verses 38 through, uh, through 42. And, uh, and so at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples have just been rebuked by the religious elite, by the, the Pharisees and the scribes who are these kind of two overlapping religious authorities uh, of the uh, first century Judaism. And so they've just been rebuked for picking grain to eat on the Sabbath. And then, immediately after that, Jesus doubles down by doing a miracle on the Sabbath. He heals a man who has some sort of a withered hand. And then immediately after that, he heals a man who's been oppressed by a demon. Now, the Sabbath stuff in particular was this huge source of contention, conflict, strife. In the Old Testament, we have something that's called the Mosaic Law. You might be familiar uh, with that. It's 600 or so commandments that were handed down by God to Israel through, uh, through Moses. And of those commandments were various regulations uh, for the Sabbath, for the seventh day of the week. And, uh, and so Israel was called to sanctify it. And among other things, that meant that they were not to work on the Sabbath. And this Mosaic law, in general, was a constant source of tension and strife between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, these two overlapping 
groups of first century uh, Jewish leaders. In particular, Jesus is going to have two critiques of the uh, religious elite of his day uh, as it relates to the Mosaic Law. First, he's going to say that they focus on the externals while they neglect the internals. They preach against adultery, but they have no problem tolerating lust. They might preach and proclaim that you have to give alms, you have to give to charity, those kinds of things, but they have no problem with the inner disposition of pride. And so that's the first critique that you're going to see throughout the Gospels, is that they focus on these externals, but neglect the internal desires of the heart. The second critique, and the one that we're going to see more in, uh, in uh, the con- context of uh, Matthew 12, is that the Pharisees and scribes had taken the Mosaic Law, and they had expanded it. Whereas the law said that you couldn't work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees are going to lengthen that, they're going to widen that, and, uh, and they're going to say that you can't walk further than this many steps. You can't carry this heavy of a load. You can carry five pounds, but not six pounds. They're going to say that uh, you couldn't light a fire or extinguish a fire because doing those were deemed some sort of work. Let me give you a modern illustration of this uh, same sort of thinking. Uh, If you happen to visit Israel today, the modern nation of Israel, you will find that elevators run much more slowly on uh, on Saturdays. In fact, every hotel will have at least one uh, elevator that's dedicated. It's called a Shabbat or a Sabbath elevator. And that elevator is going to stop on every single floor. And, uh, and so on the way up or on the way down, some of them will uh, stop on every floor going up and then stop on every floor going down. Some of them will go all the way to the top and then they'll stop on every floor going down. Uh, but uh, that's sort of the general idea. So the first time I ever went to Israel, I was just super confused. I'd get on the elevator, I'd start pushing buttons, nothing would happen whatsoever, and then I'd be stuck on the elevator for like an hour. My second time uh, to go to Israel, I was a pro by this point, and so I was with some friends and uh, leading a team over there, and so I'd tell them, you guys get on that elevator, meanwhile I'm going to tie my shoe and I'll meet you at the, 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 our floor. And Fifteen minutes later they'd get off and they were not happy with me. <laughs> All right. So why does the Sabbath elevator, why does the Shabbat elevator stop on every floor? The reason is so you don't have to press a button. Well, why does that matter? Because pushing a button, at least historically, would cause a spark. And a spark is a form of lighting a fire. And so in order to avoid the, uh, the lighting of a fire, you couldn't press a button. So instead, if you're actually a, uh, a practicing Orthodox Jew, what you would do is you would maybe take the uh, 15 flights of stairs up to your room. Now, if you're thinking about it, which one is actually more work? Pushing a button or taking 15 flights? I think we could all answer that question fairly easily. But that is kind of the principle that you see here, even in first century Judaism. By the way, this isn't just a first century Judaism or a 21st century Judaism problem. This isn't just a Jewish problem. You see this exact same thing at the very beginning of the Bible in, uh, in the book of Genesis where the woman says that God has said, not only can we not eat from this tree, but we can't even touch it. What's she doing? She's expanding the law. Right? You see that even in, uh, in churches today. So the, 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 the Scripture clearly says that you can't get drunk, but a lot of churches uh, teach that you can't, uh, you can't drink at all. Or uh, by the Bible clearly would prohibit any sort of sexual morality, but a lot of churches would say, well, then we shouldn't dance. 
or uh, you can't practice witchcraft, and so churches would say, well, then you can't ever watch Harry Potter or something like that. We have this tendency to expand uh, God's Word. We talked a lot about that in, uh, in Romans 14, uh, so go back and listen to that audio if you're interested in that. But anyway, Jesus is constantly going to be crossing and breaking these, uh, these pharisaical fences, what theologians have called the wall that is built around the law. You have the law, what's actually commanded, and then what the Pharisees did is they made this other, uh, other outer wall, this sort of moat, uh, if you will, in order to protect people from potentially getting close to that uh, wall. So Jesus is constantly crossing these pharisaical fences. He never broke the actual Mosaic law, but he often broke these man-made traditions. So you can get a feel for why it is that the scribes and the Pharisees are so riled up in the context of Matthew 12 because Jesus is disregarding the traditions and thus he's disregarding the authorities, uh, the authority of the Pharisees and the scribes. So they want to get to the bottom of this. So they stop him. They say, show us a sign. Show us your uh, license. Prove yourself. Show us that you have the right to teach and to heal and to cast out demons and to do all of these things on the Sabbath that we've said that people couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, ironically, Jesus has just shown them a sign. In fact, he's shown them many signs. He healed a man with a withered hand. He cast out a demon. Literally, that just happened in the context of Matthew 12. He's just shown them a sign, but it wasn't enough. So they say, show us another. And had he actually met that requirement, they would have said, show us another. And had he done that, they would have said, show us another. You see, disbelief and pride, they're never satiated. They're never satisfied. There's always a demand, a craving, a lust for more. Even today, some in this room, you might be thinking, I don't know about this whole resurrection thing. I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. If only God would give me, as an individual, if God would give me some sort of sign then I would believe. If God were really God, He would just prove Himself to me, then I would believe. Don't you realize how terribly arrogant that is to demand that God prove Himself to you? That's not the way this works. That's not the way any of this works. We're in no position to demand anything from God. God owes us nothing but wrath and condemnation. He doesn't owe us an explanation. He doesn't owe us proof, although He has given us proof. When you reject the Scriptures when you reject the miracles of Christ, when you reject the resurrection, you aren't actually humbly seeking proof and confirmation of the truth. You're simply failing to recognize the authority of the evidence. And you're protecting your innate desire to not submit to the rule and reign of another. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees and the scribes aren't actually interested in truth. They're interested in their own power and authority and privilege. So let's see how Jesus responds in verse 39. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Again, Jesus has just shown them a sign. And these Jewish leaders had ignored it. They had no intention of actually believing any sign from him. Remembering that is going to really help to clarify Jesus's response here. You see, requesting a sign isn't always a necessarily sinful thing in Scripture, but it is in this particular context because Christ had already shown sign after sign after sign. So the request 
it's merely disguised pride and unbelief. In fact, if you're reading Mark and Luke's parallel accounts of this event, they will say that the Pharisees and the scribes are looking to put him to the test. They're looking to disprove and discredit him. These aren't humble requests for confirmation. They're trying to test Jesus. So rather than worshiping and wondering at the signs, rather than resting in Christ's glory and his authority, instead, the Pharisees and the scribes put him to the test, which is an evidence of an evil and adulterous heart. Now, it might sound a bit harsh, a bit mean to you to hear Jesus call someone evil and adulterous, to call a group of people evil and adulterous, especially if you imagine your conception of Jesus. He has this sort of feathered blonde hair, his blue eyes. He's always being super nice and polite and politically correct. He always speaks real softly and gently. He never says anything offensive. Well, that picture resembles more Mr. Rogers or Mary Poppins than it does the Jesus of the Bible. This is a man who made a whip to drive people out of the temple. He calls religious leaders whitewashed tombs. He calls them a brood of serpents. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides and children of hell. And here in this context, he calls them evil and adulterous. You see, nice, politically correct people don't get crucified. Christ is offensive Because the truth is offensive. Why does he call them an evil and adulterous generation? Because that's exactly what they are. We see this same critique come up throughout the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. This was no novel accusation. The prophets of Israel offered the same critique of Israel over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. That the people are evil and adulterous. In other words, some things never change. In fact, nothing ever changes apart from grace. You see, this critique, calling these people evil and adulterous, this critique isn't just a critique against first century Judaism, but it's a critique against every generation of every culture that has ever existed, which means that you and I are right beside the Pharisees and the scribes being critiqued by Jesus. Humanity itself is plagued by wicked, evil, and adulterous hearts. Every man, every woman, every child among us. Around Easter last year, we were in Romans 3, and we read uh, Romans 3, 9 through 18, which says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. Listen to this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's mankind apart. From grace. That's you and that's me apart from divine grace. Unrighteous, unseeking, spiritually worthless, wicked, wretched, helpless, hopeless. If you're expecting this happy little sermon when you came to Parkway this morning, so upbeat about how great you are and how beautiful you are and how talented you are, that you're good enough and you're smart enough and gosh darn it, people like you. 
If that was what you were expecting, you're in the wrong church. And not only are you in the wrong church, you're in the wrong religion. You see, the good news of, uh, of the resurrection of Christ can't be understood apart from the crucifixion of Christ. The good news of Easter only comes as we consider the bad news of our inherent depravity, of our inherent sinfulness. If you and I were good, morally upstanding, righteous, virtuous, or noble, then the sacrificial slaughter of Christ wouldn't have been necessary, but we aren't. And so it was. And Jesus points to this underlying sinful disposition of the human heart. He calls it out. He says, our enemy is within our problem is that we have evil and adulterous hearts. And he says there will be no sign that's going to be given that will appease the sinful heart's lust and craving for more. But there will be a future sign that will serve as the final definitive confirmation of Christ's authority. He calls that sign the sign of Jonah. So if you grow up in Sunday school, you remember Jonah, right? This angry guy swallowed by a big fish. If that doesn't ring any bells or it just floods your mind with questions about the historicity of this or something like that, then let me encourage you, keep coming to Parkway. Uh, hopefully, Lord willing, in about a month, we'll finish the book of Romans, and then our plan is to spend about two months working through the, uh, the book of Jonah. So keep coming and we'll walk through that. Let me give you a brief uh, preview by way of summary. So Jonah was this Hebrew prophet, and Jonah loved what you might call home court advantage. You tell Jonah to go and to preach to a Jewish king, and he's all about that, right? He's like Jordan. He's dropping 60 points or whatever it might be. But you tell him to go to, a, uh, to, to preach to a foreign people, he does not like away games at all. So when God tells him to go to Nineveh, which is uh, the largest city in the world at that time. It's the capital city of Assyria, who are arch enemies of Israel. He instead goes in the exact opposite direction. He hops on a boat to Tarshish. Now things are initially somewhat good for Jonah on his little Mediterranean cruise until this big storm arises. And if you know the story, he's thrown overboard. A big fish swallows him. He's in the belly of a fish for a few unpleasant days until the fish vomits him up on the shore, at which point he has this uh, epiphany, I think we could all understand, where he thinks, I should probably go to Nineveh at this point. So he gets to Nineveh. He proclaims there the word of the Lord, and something fascinating and unexpected happens. If you're reading this for the first time, try, try to imagine that you didn't learn this story in Sunday school. Try to imagine that you're coming to this for the first time and you're reading this story, you would have no expectation that what is going to happen is what actually happens. The people repent. The people repent. They turn from their sin. They humble themselves in sackcloth and ashes. To understand why, it's really helpful for us to understand a little bit of the religious context. So in the Assyrian, again, uh, Assyria is the larger nation that Nineveh is the capital city of. In the Assyrian pantheon, of gods was one particular god who was one of the kind of the highest, uh, the upper echelon of gods, and his name was Dagon, and he was the fish god. He's often pictured as this half man, half fish sort of uh, being, like Aquaman or Ariel's dad, King Triton, or something like that, a merman. So for a people, imagine that you're a people who worship a fish god, and all of a sudden, this prophet comes who's swallowed up and then vomited out by a great fish. 
What does that symbolize to you? Well, Yahweh, the Lord God, must be greater than Dagon. The fact that Jonah was swallowed up and vomited out by a great fish was a fairly obvious sign to the greater power and authority of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. The seaweed still clinging to Jonah's cloak. The stench of decomposing plankton and fish guts were signs to Nineveh of the power and authority of Yahweh, the Lord God. Likewise, the scars in his hands, feet, and side, the empty tomb, the gospels, the hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection are signs to believe in the power and authority of Christ himself, the Lord God. Let's keep going. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So now we see the analogy here that just as Jonah was buried in the belly of the uh, the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, which is a nickname for Jesus, be buried in the belly of the earth. What happened after those three days and three nights? That's the resurrection. That's Easter. We'll get to that. But first... Let's talk about this whole three days and three nights thing. You ever wonder how it can be said that Jesus was in the belly of the earth, the heart of the earth, that Jesus was in the grave, in the tomb for three days and three nights if he died on Friday and rose again on Sunday? Anyone ever booked a hotel? Right? If you're staying at a hotel from Friday to Sunday, that's three days and two nights. That's not three days and three nights. So what do we do with that? Well, some would want to just dismiss this. Say this is an inconsistency. This is a contradiction of Scripture. Again, the unbelieving heart always justifies its unbelief, but there are compelling and adequate responses to this, uh, what might seem on the surface to be a discrepancy. For example, we need to understand that Jesus isn't saying that these two things are exactly alike. He's making an analogy. And an analogy isn't just like the thing that it symbolizes. For example, when I was a kid... I would love to play basketball, and oftentimes I would play basketball with my dad, and he would always stick out his tongue whenever he was driving to the basket. So we would say that he looks like Michael Jordan. Now, my dad was, is five foot eight, and he was born in Japan. In the entire history of the world, no one has ever confused my dad with Michael Jordan. No one's ever looked at my dad and thought, man, that guy looks a lot like Michael Jordan, right? There's just one area of similarity. And that is that they both stick out their tongue whenever they drive to the basket. Likewise with this analogy that Jesus is giving. There's a similarity between Jonah and Jesus. There is similarity between the belly of a fish and the belly of the earth. There's similarity between the exact time that Jonah is in the fish and the time that Jesus is in the grave, but they aren't the exact same. So what does Jesus mean by saying that he will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights? Well, instead of thinking that tradition must have gotten this wrong for the past 2,000 years, instead of thinking that the Bible is inconsistent or there's some sort of contradiction, we just need to understand this is an idiom. What's an idiom? An idiom is a phrase whose meaning cannot be determined, cannot be ascertained, cannot be understood simply by understanding the meaning of the individual words. Let me give you some examples of these that you use all the time. Whether you know what an idiom is or not, you actually use idioms all the time. For example, anytime you talk of a wild goose chase, does that often involve geese? 
No, right? We talk about bigger fish to fry. Or you say it's raining cats and dogs. Or you're killing two birds with one stone. Or you're letting the cat out of the bag. Those are just some of the animal-related idioms. There's a ton of other idioms that are not animal-related. None of these are literal. They're figures of speech whose meaning isn't determined by the individual words, but rather by the way that the phrase is used in the larger context of culture. Let the cat out of the bag doesn't mean, mean that you have a literal cat in a literal bag. Trust me, if you ever have a cat in the bag, the last thing that you want to do is let it out. Just leave it in there, right? Likewise, the phrase day and night was a Jewish idiom. It's a common expression that covers just about any portion of a day. By the way, we have examples from the Old Testament. I'm not going to give you any, but if this is a particular area of interest for you, then go and look them up. We have examples from the Old Testament of where the phrase three days and three nights was used synonymously with the phrase on the third day. So the phrase three days and three nights just points to three portions of three days. That's it. He was in the grave part of Friday, part of Saturday, and part of Sunday. So don't get tripped up on the whole three days and three nights thing as if that's an, uh, a contradiction or some sort of inconsistency. But let's talk about the sign. What's the sign? Let's start with, uh, with Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah to Nineveh? In the original context, what is the sign? Not the fact that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Lots of people have been swallowed by a great fish. Quint from Jaws. You ever watching the, the movie Jaws, right? <laughs> Geppetto, Pinocchio, right? They're both swallowed by big fish. Most of the cast of uh, Sharknado, I would assume, I never saw it. So getting eaten by a fish isn't much of a sign. That doesn't prove that you're a prophet. Living to tell the tale is what does. Lots of people get eaten by fish. But living to tell the tale is what the sign is. Likewise, with the sign that Jesus is referencing, being in the heart of the earth isn't the sign. That just means he's going to die. You know who else died? Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, Julius Caesar, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, maybe Elvis. I'm not sure where we are on that. You know, I keep going. There's just on and on. Everyone dies. That's not a sign, but not everyone has risen from the dead. So being in the belly of the earth isn't the sign. The resurrection is the sign. And what does a sign do? Well, it signals something. It symbolizes something. It demonstrates something and calls for some sort of response. As when you say stop sign, you know that you're not supposed to just admire the fact that it's octagonal and red. You're supposed to stop. Some of you take that as a, more of a suggestion than a command. But a, a sign is intended to call for some sort of response and to symbolize something. So what does the resurrection symbolize? Let's look at the final two verses. Verses 41 to 42. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater then Solomon is here. So this is the sign that something greater than Jonah and Solomon is here. We'll get to that, put that on hold for a second. But first, let's look at these two illustrations that he gives. He talks about the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south. By the way, both of these illustrations, both of these examples are from the Old Testament. Apparently, Jesus doesn't think that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. He expects his people to be familiar with, with the stories of Scripture. 
If you know who Dirk is, if you know who Tiger is, if you know who Queen Latifah is or Freddie Mercury is, then you should also be familiar with narratives about the men of Nineveh, the Assyrians, the Queen of the South, or as she's known as in the book of 1 Kings, the Queen of Sheba. And that familiarity comes only by actually reading the Bible. I know it can be confusing. I know it takes a degree of discipline, but I assure you, if you'll just read it and read it and read it and read it again, it will progressively make sense to you. It's kind of like watching the, uh, an episode of a show that you've never seen for the first time. Maybe there's these inside uh, jokes that you just don't get. Maybe there's, the, there's these characters that you aren't familiar with. But thankfully, we have this God-given gift called Hulu. We have this God-given gift called Netflix. And you can go back and you can watch the entire series, and all of a sudden, these jokes that didn't make sense all of a sudden make sense. And these characters that you weren't uh, familiar with at all, all of a sudden you begin to know and love. That's how it is with reading Scripture. If you just read it and read it and read it and read it, I promise you the picture will grow progressively clearer. Now let me say this. If you've tried that, let's say you've spent months and months and months and months reading and reading and reading and nothing's helping whatsoever, then let me encourage you, that's time for us to get some outside help. Grab coffee with your community group leader. Contact one of our staff or elders. We would love to help walk you through this. I don't bring any of this up to shame you if you aren't familiar with the Old Testament and its narratives, but instead to encourage you to not be complacent with that lack of familiarity. There should be a longing, a desire for you to know God's Word. Back to the text. Jesus gives these two examples from the Old Testament of Gentiles who have some sort of positive response to the preaching of the kingdom of God. By the way, that doesn't necessarily mean that every Ninevite or the queen of Sheba experienced eternal salvation. Again, this is just an analogy. And what is the analogy? Well, Jonah is a powerful prophet. Solomon is a powerful king. But Christ is greater than both. He isn't merely a prophet who speaks for God. He is God Himself. He isn't merely a king who rules in the place of God, but God Himself. He is the eternal, co-equal, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Jesus said something similar a few verses earlier in Matthew 12, 6. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. You see that same language something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon, something greater than the temple. The temple was merely this physical place where heaven and earth overlap, where man kind of goes to meet God. But Christ is greater because He is the God-man. He's the person in whom heaven and earth overlap, where man can be fully and forever reconciled to God. In other words, this passage is an argument from the lesser to the greater If pagan Gentiles repented at the preaching of Jonah raised from a fish, how much more should these Jewish leaders repent at the preaching of the Son of God raised from the dead? If a pagan woman rejoiced at the glory of King Solomon, how much more should we rejoice at the glory of King Jesus? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying all of the offices, all of the institutions of the Old Testament are shadows, but He is the substance. Jonah is a picture. 
Solomon is a picture. The temple is a picture. Each of them pointed to something greater which was to come, but Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the thing that's signified by the sign. He is the substance, whereas all of those other things are shadows. You know, the difference between a symbol and the fulfillment is kind of like the difference between holding a sonogram image and holding your newborn son or daughter. I rejoice every time we go to the OBGYN and, and she puts the, the, the jelly on, uh, on Casey's belly. That sounds like Santa or something. And, uh, uh, and then we see the image up there, but it pales in comparison to what I imagine I will experience in two months when my son uh, is born. A picture is great, but not nearly as great as what it symbolizes. That's what he's saying here. If men and women repoint, uh, repented and rejoiced at the pictures that Jonah and Solomon and the temple provide, how much more should we rejoice at the coming of the one to whom those pictures point? Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the greater priest. He's the greater king. And the kingdom of God is what this passage is ultimately about. You see, when the Pharisees and the scribes stop Jesus, when they ask him for a sign, what are they asking? Well, that's a kingdom question. They're asking, him the question uh, uh, they're asking him, what gives you the right? Or who gives you the authority? Kingdom sort of question. In the context of Matthew 12, Jesus had already answered that question, however. He had given proof. He had given verification. He had given validation of his authority. In fact, he had already even explained it. He had this sort of letter imprinted with the divine seal. Not only had he done this sign, but he even explained the sign a few verses earlier. Matthew 12, 28, when he cast out a demon from the man, he said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, listen to this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They asked by whose authority? Jesus' response, the authority of the king. In other words, the whole passage is about the kingdom, and the kingdom is what Easter is about because that's what the gospel is about. In Mark's gospel, at the very beginning, in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, listen to this, the gospel of God. And what's he saying as he proclaims the gospel? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the kingdom. The gospel is the kingdom. What's that mean? Well, imagine all the way back to Genesis. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Theologians call that the fall. It's the introduction of sin into the world. But before that, you have Genesis 1 and 2. You have creation. You have perfection. You have God looking out upon the world that He had made and said, it's good and indeed it's very good. Work, marriage, worship, all of those things are good. But then Genesis 3 happens and everything is fractured. Not just this division between man and God, between man and his fellow man, between man and creation. Everything indeed is fractured and chaos enters into the world. Death and destruction, disease and abuse and cancer and on and on and on we could go. Now imagine a world, if you can, with none of that chaos, with no sickness, with no sin, with no death, with no disease. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom is marked by no obstacles, no hindrances to the rule and reign of God. And that's what Jesus inaugurated. 
That's what his ministry pointed to. Jesus' miracles, Jesus' signs, they aren't neat magic tricks or illusions that he does to impress the disciples and pick up girls or something like that. When Jesus drives out a demon or when he heals a man with a withered hand, what's he doing in that moment? He's showing signs that the kingdom has begun. Because in the kingdom, there is no demonic oppression. In the kingdom, there is no disease. And so he's showing us a foretaste. He's showing us a glimpse. He's showing us a whisper, a hint of what is to come. He's saying this has begun even now. He's showing us a little bit of the already, even as we wait for the not yet. He's showing us the kingdom has been inaugurated even as we wait for the consummation when death and disease and demons and all of that will be dealt the final blow in the resurrection of, uh, of mankind. But Jesus didn't just come to rid us of demons and disease. That's the context of Matthew 12. But He didn't just come to rid us of those enemies. He came to rid us of our greater enemies that are sin and death. So He died as a sacrifice for our sins and He rose again as validation, justification of His authority. That's the sign of Jonah. That's the sign of resurrection, the ultimate consummate sign of the kingdom of God. So follow the logic of this text as a whole. The resurrection, the sign of Jonah, that he's no longer in the belly of the, uh, the earth, the resurrection will serve as a sign, as verification, as validation of the kingdom of God. And as an implication of this, we should repent. This text talks about repentance. It calls us to repentance. So what does resurrection have to do with repentance? Well, everything. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this pattern where the, the, the apostles are preaching the resurrection, and then the response that they call from the people is repentance. By the way, the most common thing that disciples are, uh, the apostles are preaching isn't the love of God, it's the resurrection. That's the message of the book of Acts. Does God love you? Absolutely. Does God love you and have a wonderful plan for your life? Yes and amen. Is that the apostolic message of the book of Acts? No. What's the message of the book of Acts? That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and therefore we must repent. I'm going to give one example of this, but you can see the same pattern play out throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's first recorded sermon, a little over a month after Jesus rises from the dead, in verses 23 through 24, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death, pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. And then in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of, all that, and of that we are all witnesses. So you see here the primacy of the resurrection in regards to what Peter is preaching. And then you get to verse 36 and it says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you anointed. The word Christ is from the, uh, the Greek word Christos, which is related to the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Christ, Messiah, both of those just mean one who is anointed. Who would you anoint? You would anoint prophets, priests, in particular kings. So this is kingdom language. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ King, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you see the implication of the resurrection is the lordship, the kingdom uh, of, uh, of Christ. And then what is the application? 
Look in verses 37 through 38, the very next verses. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, the, uh, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the resurrection proves the lordship of King Jesus, which beckons us to repentance because it proves that He's sovereign and it proves that sin is futile and our only hope is to accept His terms of peace, to lay down our arms, to surrender, to turn from sin and to trust in His mercy. In other words, this passage is saying, if Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, how much more should you and I repent at the preaching of Christ crucified and risen? If the Queen of the South was astounded and amazed by the splendor of Solomon and his wisdom and riches, how much more should we be amazed and astounded at the splendor and the glory of the wisdom and the riches of King Jesus? What if you aren't amazed? What if you don't repent? The passage points in one direction. It says condemnation. The men of Nineveh, the queen of the south, will rise up in condemnation if the penalty for rejecting Jonah and the penalty for rejecting the rule of Solomon was severe, how much more severe for rejecting the rule and reign of King Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the only Savior and hope for humanity. But for all of us who would see and savor the glory, the beauty, the authority of King Jesus, for all of us who would repent and believe there is mercy and grace and a thousand times a thousand blessings because Christ has died Christ has risen King Jesus beckons us to faith and repentance so let's pray Father I thank you for your word this morning I thank you for the image that you've given us in the story of, uh, of Jonah you've given us this picture not only of the repentance of the Ninevites but also this this type that points to the fulfillment of Christ. You see a little shadow here of what Christ is going uh, to do and calling us to repentance. I'm grateful that you are a God who gives the gift of repentance to your people, that you would show us that sin is ultimately uh, fleeting and ugly and unsatisfying. And so I pray that you would help us to find that you are beautiful and good and satisfying that we might turn from sin and toward you in faith because of the reality of the resurrection of your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.